Each year, millions of Americans seek alternative forms of treatment for chronic health problems. What's going on? Why are they seeking alternative treatments, and do they work? Today's guest will help us wade through some of the answers to these questions, and perhaps some of the questions to the answers. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I'm very pleased to introduce to you Melanie Warner, who is the author of The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. Melanie, welcome. Thank you very much. Melanie, you have created really a resource uh, about alternative medicine. What were your thoughts about alternative medicine before you began your information gathering? Well, I'd like to think that I was pretty open-minded about it. I heard from a lot of people when I, when I told people casually that I was working on a book about alternative medicine. So many people seem to have stories to share with me about how they've been helped by some particular approach, they or someone else they knew. Um, and so I really wanted to understand whether these therapies could work because on the other side you have people who are very skeptical about them and say um, that they're really nonsense and people are wasting their time. And so, I mean, as you mentioned, there's so many people out there that are suffering from chronic health problems and particularly pain. I mean, the statistics on pain are, are actually staggering. About a third of Americans report having pain on most days for for at least or more than three months, which is how chronic pain is defined. And doctors are not very good at um, treating chronic pain often for people. So that's one of the main things that's driving people to seek alternative approaches. And so I really wanted to know, can these things work? Which ones work? And then also, how are they working if they are working? How are they actually helping people? And, you know, the other thing about chronic pain, particularly when it has come to women, is that many times docs weren't even sure they believed that she was experiencing chronic pain. They kind of thought it was made up. That's right. I mean, you had, there's no way, there's no test you can do to see someone's chronic pain, the way you can do a blood test for a lot of things. So you, doctors really do have to take people at their word. And most people genuinely have um, when they say that their their body hurts or they're not feeling well, they're really telling their doctor what's going on. And and sometimes doctors um, they want to believe patients, but they don't give off uh, those reassuring, supportive signals that people are really looking for when they go to their doctor. You know, people go in and they they feel dismissed or like, oh, I shouldn't have brought that up. That was that was stupid. My doctor doesn't have time for this. And that was one thing that I really noticed with talking to a lot of alternative practitioners and people who've gone to them, there's a feeling of validation. You know, your concerns are not dismissed sometimes in the way they are in the um, conventional medical world, which is not to say that people are always dismissed um, when they go to see their doctor at all. There's some very good and caring doctors. But it's a different interaction and a different experience when people go to see alternative practitioners. Well, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about the story that you tell very early uh, in the magic feather effect of Donna, who was an energy healer. When she was talking to you about the impact of giving someone she didn't know avocados, and she said, and I'm going to quote 
your quote of her, which I thought was so powerful. We human beings need one another. We heal one another just by recognizing each other. What did you think of that when you heard her say that? Yeah, I think it's a very simple yet profound idea. And we don't always think about this in in the context of medicine. I mean, we know that if you go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, that that's what they're going to do. They're going to try to look into your life and into your thoughts and feelings and help you draw them out. But in the context of, of medicine, um, these ideas can be incredibly powerful. I mean, doctors used to think of them as a good bedside manner. It's, it's kind of just a, a euphemistic way to encapsulate um, the very um, – rich interaction that can take place between a doctor and a patient or a practitioner and a patient. And it involves lots of things that I talk about this woman, Donna Eden, as having. Um, it's, it's empathy, the ability to listen, um, the intuitive sense to know what someone needs, what someone's actually going through, and what someone needs and how to interact with them. And these are things that are very hard. Doctors know, if you, if you talk to really good doctors, They'll say, yeah, this stuff is really important. And I actually spent some time with um, the dean of medical education at Harvard Medical School who surprised me in saying that these um, soft elements and psychological elements, for lack of a better word, of medicine, he thinks are actually important or maybe not, maybe more important than all the physiological stuff um, and the, the, uh, the biomechanics that, that doctors have to practice. So... So I think that, um, you know, that, that's one of the things I wanted to look at in, in, in my book. What are these things and, how, and, and why are they so important? You tell a story about a former uh, chiropractor, uh, Joe Dispenser. I don't know if I'm doing his name justice. Um, but you explained that he was hit by an SUV, doctors recommended surgery, which certainly makes sense, one would think. And he decided that he was going to go home and heal himself. This is after being hit by an SUV. Uh, and and being told that he needed to have implants, uh, uh, stabilizing rods implanted along his spinal column. So what did you think when when you learned that he was going to go home and heal himself? Yeah, he's a guy who he's an he's an author. Um, and he's he's he wrote a book about his ex, his experiences, and his his book was called "You Are the Placebo." And so I I didn't look too closely into into his story. Um, I think that, but I I talked to people who had healed themselves from from back problems. Um, there was a, a guy who was in his late 60s who started experiencing um, very excruciating back pain, and it. He tried a whole bunch of things. It went on for three years. He was told he needed surgery by uh, four different teams of doctors, and uh, including ones at the Mayo Clinic. And he, through a process of working with what you could call, for lack of a better word, healers, um, there were two different two different people that he sought out and went on what one of them called a healing journey with them. And that sounds very woo-woo and strange, but it's some of these things that I was just talking about, the way um, that that people can um, relate to each other in, in a way that can um, shift mindsets and create changes, um, positive behavior and create changes in people's bodies. And so I detail how he was able to, in 
span of about five months or six months to become almost pain-free. And the last time I talked to him, it was about another year later, um, he had no pain at all and was, was traveling around the world and going on hikes and doing all the things that he used to do before he before the onset of his back pain. So I did encounter incredible stories um, along the way of people who had, in some cases, healed themselves, but in other cases, they worked with other people to um, take them on a journey, a journey of healing. It, it really is an extraordinary story that you share, and the concept has certainly been around for years and years, but you're right. So many people have sort of seen it as mystical, crazy madness and not real and haven't really paid attention to it. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like for you to explain uh, what empathic acupuncture is and how folks who were participants in empathic acupuncture fared uh, during and after treatment. So that's where we'll start. We will come right back. Folks, stay where you are. There is much more to come. Continuing the conversation with Melanie Warner, author of The Magic Feather Effect. Melanie, tell us about empathic acupuncture. What is that? Well, that was just something I think you're referring to a study that was done yes. by, um, at Harvard Medical School, right? Yeah, that was something that a placebo researcher uh, decided to do for a long time. Um, placebo effects were, were discarded as something not very medically important. Um, people knew that they existed. Most doctors knew they existed. Researchers had to include a placebo group in their clinical trial, but that was only to separate out all the aspects of placebo effects, so the beliefs and expectations that you bring to um, a particular therapy, um, the interaction that you have with the person giving it to you. All that stuff was not thought of as very important. And this, this researcher at, at Harvard, his name is Ted Kopchuk, he um, he decided he was one of the first people to say, "Look, effects are something um, in and of their own right. We know that they are biologically active mechanisms. We know that there are changes inside the brain that happen when people experience placebo effects. These are real things." So he he tested them in a clinical trial by giving people two different types of acupuncture. Actually, it was a fake form of acupuncture that's used in a lot of clinical trials where people don't actually get the needle. Um, the th- you know, If people know about acupuncture, it's these very thin needles that go yes. into points on your body. And so people didn't actually get the needle um, inserted in. It's a, 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 
a sham needle that doesn't puncture the skin. So he, he gave two sets of people each of these sham needle treatments, but one of them got the empathetic acupuncture that you were referring to where the, the, the person that's giving the acupuncture comes in, sits down and looks someone in the eye, asks them questions, says things like, I know this has been very difficult for you. And all the patients were people who had irritable bowel syndrome. Um, which can be a very difficult thing for people to deal with. Sure. And um, they touched uh, the person's hand or the person's shoulder and just tried to really engage with the person. So that was one group. And then the other group got a, um, a very um, standard um, sort of uh, perfunctory cold where there was no interaction, only minimal talking. And this person kind of came in, did the treatment, and left without without much ado. And so when the results were tallied up, um, the researchers found that the people who got the empathetic and the warm approach um, had a much better result. They, the more people experienced relief from their symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome than people that got the other approach. So that suggests that placebo effects are, are, are working because of... Um, the interaction between two people and the attention and the empathy and the support that, that people feel during those experiences. Has there been uh, a look at who is more likely to achieve the positive effects uh, between the sexes, men or women? Have you had a chance to look at that? Yeah, researchers have been trying to to understand this for years, placebo researchers, but they haven't come to any clear conclusions. And I don't think it's clear that there's a gender difference between the response of um, people who respond to placebos. But there's interesting work going on with genotypes um, and genetic differences that people have that in terms of regulating some of their brain neurochemistry, uh, particularly dopamine, is is one um, one area that researchers are looking at, and, and people who have a certain genotype that regulates dopamine, they might be more uh, responsive to placebos. And dopamine is is a chemical in the brain; it does a lot of things. But the important thing here is it's part of a reward system. So people that are more cued into um, being open to experiences and getting rewards might be the people that are more likely to respond to placebos. Okay, very interesting. The idea that so many people um, experience pain and experience it on a daily basis, as you were doing your research, were you surprised at the number of people who have the daily experience of chronic pain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I mean, as we all know, pain, is, pain can be excruciating. And it's something that the the medical community and also the National Institutes of Health um, is is starting to take much more seriously and start to do actual research into trying to find uh, especially non-pharmacological approaches to it. I mean, we have an opioid crisis in part because so many people are in pain and for years doctors were prescribing opioids as a way to treat pain. When in reality, the studies show that for chronic pain, for acute pain, opioids can be powerful, um, like after surgery. But for chronic pain, they really don't help at all. And of course, you have people, people getting addicted to them. Um, so there really is a need for, for non-pharmacological approaches, of which alternative medicine um, can be one. 
You know, I'm I'm mm-hmm. reminded of a, a client that I had some years ago, um, who went from doctor to doctor to doctor, and finally one of them uh, said that she was uh, suffering with fibromyalgia. But even then, there was such uh, an argument, if you will, within the medical community: is this real or is this not real? Um, so the frustration yeah. of having pain and not being believed can actually help you to feel worse. Yeah, well, sometimes there's this, there's this bias in the medical community that if it's not, if you can't identify it at a test or an imaging scan, or if it's not coming somewhere clearly from the body and you can point and say, aha, this is the cause of your pain, then somehow there's a bias to think that it's not real. So, so, so things like fibromyalgia, right, where all the tests are, are normal, there's scans, there's nothing really wrong with your body, supposedly. Um, at irritable bowel syndrome is, is, is another one as well. People, you know, don't have the standard GI problems that doctors would expect to find. Um, but to say that there's nothing wrong or that, um, you know, somehow this is not real is completely wrong. I mean, there's so much that... that brain scientists um, are learning about the the role that the central nervous system plays in chronic pain and the role that the brain plays and the changes. You can actually see some studies have been done where you can actually see changes in people's brain uh, when they have chronic pain. So when their pain lasts for three, three, year, three months or longer, you actually start to see changes in the brain. So it's not necessarily what people think it is. It's not necessarily something physiological in the body, but there are changes in the brain, and that doesn't make it any more real or important. For a time, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, the the therapeutic practice of sort of helping you to think differently about how you think, um, was really kind of seen as the gold standard. So I was surprised uh, when you shared information about a study that said roughly 40% of people achieve 30 to 40% reduction in pain for at least some of the time when they're going through CBT. I, I expected it to be more, um, I expected the numbers to be greater than that. Yeah, I know you would you would hope, but pain can be incredibly difficult to to treat. Um, people respond to different things. Not everyone. I think there's the thinking now that not everyone is going to respond to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's it's um it's a kind of cerebral ap- approach that yes. not everyone is going to respond to. Mm-hmm. So I think that you have to. That's why you have to look at a range of different different therapies. There's other therapies that are coming out now that are similar, you know, similar group-based kind of psychological approaches, but that are more based on uh, emotions and, and emotional expression and also um, acceptance of, um, of, of what, what you're going through instead of trying to fight it all the time. So there's, there's different ways of, of treating chronic pain and of, of, of approaching the same problem. You shared a conversation that you had with Dr. Lorimer Mosley. Uh, am I doing that name justice? 
Laura Mermosa, yeah, he's an Australian neuroscientist. (laughs) And one of the things that that you quote him as saying, which actually makes a a great deal of sense, is that a driving feature of much chronic pain is a nervous system that's become oversensitized, like a smoke alarm screaming at you every time you burn some toast. And I think we all have had that kind of a smoke alarm. Yeah, exactly. And we all know a little bit, you know, if we have a headache, and we experience stress, like uh, our kids are screaming or something goes wrong with our computer, I mean, the headache gets way worse. So, so we know that there is a, um, uh, a brain and a, and a mind-based aspect to, to chronic pain, uh, or to any kind of pain, rather. But, um, but so much interesting research is going on with pain and how it works in the brain and in the central nervous system. So um, the idea is that that when you have chronic pain, your brain, for the longer you have it, the, the better your brain gets at producing it. It's almost like your brain, and all this is happening unconsciously. No one is actively creating this. Um, it's almost like your brain is, getting, um, is, is becoming more sensitive to the signals in your body, so it's tuning up its sensitivity uh, to what the body is telling it, and it gets better at producing pain. Like people are learning to... Uh, become uh, to uh, learning to react in pain to certain situations. To almost anticipating the pain and thus helping it to sort of break through. Yeah, I mean, if you think that, oh, every time I bend over this way or every time I get into the car or every time I um, try and exercise, my back is going to hurt or my knee is going to hurt, that will actually produce the pain. If you expect the pain to happen, then it probably will happen. So part of part of it is a conditioning process, um, and again, all of it. No one's bringing this on themselves. It's not to say. I think there's a, a risk with all of this that it's going to we're going to bl- blame patients, and that's not what's happening at all. It's it's all unconscious, and it's things that happen in our brain and wiring that happens in our brain. We are going to take a break from this conversation with Melanie Warner, who is author of The Magic Feather Effect, and we will be right back. So you stay where you are. Melanie, the final chapter in the Magic Feather Effect is titled Why Doctors Need to Be More Like Alternative Healers and Vice Versa. So my question to you um, is to give me a 30-second response (laughs) to why is it that doctors need to be more like alternative healers? I think what I learned from the book is that 
that doctors need to pay more attention to their to their patients in a in a deep and, and empathetic way and to take their concerns seriously and to think about um, to think about connecting with them um, in, a, in a way that they're they're maybe not used to doing because that's something that alternative healers do and it's something that they 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 learn some of them have gifts for doing it and others um, learn it through the practice over time but on the other side we I should also mention that that I think alternative healers have a lot to learn from doctors in terms of being more scientific about how their practices actually work and when you say be more scientific what do you mean I think be more open to not thinking about the traditional theories that they have about their practices. So whether that's um, meridians flowing in the body and chi um, or universal um, life force energy that you hear a lot of energy healers talk about, but thinking about things like placebo effects and mind-body interactions and the activity of the central nervous system, those things that are much more scientific and evidence-based. So, again, you're saying that each sort of side of the treatment coin, if you will, can learn from the other. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that the best medicine is going to come when we merge the two approaches and are open to um, allowing, allowing patients to move between, between to get the best of both worlds. Was there anything that you discovered doing your research that particularly surprised you? I think the the reality of placebo effects surprised me. I knew about the placebo effect, but I had an experience at a lab at the University of Maryland with a placebo researcher where she subjected me to her experiments, and I sat in a pain chair and, and got um, heat signals sent to my arm and actually felt what a placebo effect could do. And that I hadn't, I didn't expect to have that, um, that experience of, of being so surprised and shocked by that, given that I already knew a lot about placebo effects at that point. Interesting. Tell us where folks can get more information about you, the work you're doing, things like that. My website is melanierwarner.com and it's M-E-L-A-N-I-E-R, Warner, W-A-R-N-E-R. Terrific. Melanie, thank you so much. There's so much more uh, that you share with us in The Magic Feather Effect. It's probably a book that would be wonderful for every, every clinician to read, certainly regardless of their particular discipline, because it really does kind of open one up to possibilities. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's part of what medicine is about. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. 
Remember that you can listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to the Mind Talk website or going to your favorite platform. The Mind Talk website is m y n d t a l k dot o r g. And I'd love to hear any uh, questions or comments you have about this or any other Mind Talk program. The email address is Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org. And remember always, folks, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.